You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. In 1968, in between his numerous drug binges, Andy Warhol and photographer Nat Finkelstein coined the phrase, in the future, everybody will be world famous for 15 minutes. Of course, when this phrase was originally said, the web was something that people tried to get off the wood paneled walls behind their sunburst clocks. Fast forward to the ultra-connected 21st century, and the desire for recognition, praise, and fortune are at a higher level than ever before. Visions of actors, dancers, and musicians walking red carpets, getting interviewed on late-night talk shows, and having legions of fans tell them how great they are, are leading people to base their entire self-worth on how many likes an Instagram post gets, or how many times their TikTok is shared. That's not to say this is an entirely new concept, however. The human race has always been fascinated by the idea of achieving the superficial glory of fame. But in a world before Ryan Seacrest would be accosted every week by people who wanted to be the next big star, MGM would usher in the 1980s with a film that followed eight talented students as they walked the grimy streets of New York City and navigated their way through the demanding and intense High School of Performing Arts. This is the story of a British director's first attempt at making a film in the United States, of the formation of a musical duo that would come to dominate the 1980s, and of a movie that would reshape the disco style of 1970s America into the dance-pop-heavy, leg-warmer-clad scene of the 80s. This is the story of fame. The movie. Welcome to Fear City. This wasn't the opening sentence of a new Stephen King novel, 
but rather was the cover of a survival guide for tourists of New York City in the late 1970s. The bustling, posh, and affluent New York of today was a very different place back then. Robberies were up 21%, aggravated assault was up 15%, and burglary was up by 19%. The pamphlet was created by Ken McFeely, the head of the Patrolmen's Benevolent Association, as a way to stop cuts to the police force. It warned visitors to stay off the streets after 6 p.m., to safeguard their handbags, and to avoid public transportation, but also to not walk anywhere. However, the best safety advice offered by this pamphlet was until things change, stay away from New York City if you possibly can. The exaggerated pamphlet caused widespread panic among the city government, since tourism was one of the last industries keeping New York afloat. The city was close to bankruptcy after years of bad policies. The subways were littered with graffiti, buildings were in decay, and no neighborhood was complete without a storefront dedicated to showing Mr. Leon the Spanking Professor. Yet while the city seemed to be tearing itself apart on the surface, there was still one major force bringing people together underneath. Art. Since New York was so cheap and so close to the rich history of Broadway, it became a stronghold for the misfits, leading to a home for an eclectic mix of artists. On a snowy January night in 1974, a group of dancers got together to share stories of the experiences that had led them to that point. After multiple rounds of these discussions, director Michael Bennett had the groundwork for a new musical. One year, and one massively successful run at the Public Theater later, a new musical would open at the Schubert Theater on July 25, 1975, named A Chorus Line. Broadway had been in a major slump, but the show was able to save The Great White Way by increasing attendance by nearly 2 million people, reinvigorating Times Square, and becoming a major tourist attraction in the process. When a theatrical agent named David De Silva finally saw the show in 1976, he was particularly struck by the song Nothing. Performed by the Puerto Rican character Diana, it chronicled her humiliating experiences during acting classes at the High School of Performing Arts. He was struck by this, and envisioned creating a film based around the ambitions, struggles, and trials of young students who wanted to make a living in the performance world. In essence, he could create a pre-chorus line. De Silva was a native New Yorker who graduated from Queens College with a degree in history. His original plan was to become a teacher, but he soon fell in love with theater and started training under famed acting coach Stella Adler. This combination of New York, history, and theater meant that it would only be a matter of time until he developed an interest in the High School of Performing Arts. The school, which students would endearingly call PA for short, was established in 1948 on the Upper West Side of Manhattan as a magnet school. While traditional public schools are typically zoned out based on the location of the student's home, a magnet school is able to transcend those boundaries, which leads to a diverse mix of students. While the school is public, that doesn't mean that everybody gets in. In 2009, out of nearly 9,000 applicants, only 664 were accepted. The competition to get in during the 1970s was fierce, and the auditions were nerve-wracking. The students weren't only fighting to get into a program to learn about art, they were fighting to get into a school where it was okay to be different. 
It was more than a school. It was an opportunity to belong and have a greater chance at achieving a better life. De Silva started spending time at PA, observing the students as they went about their days. Out of all the classes and different rooms in the school, the one area he kept finding himself going back to was the lunchroom. The area possessed a special atmosphere of collaboration through artistic chaos, with the diverse mix of different disciplines working off each other. In one corner of the room, there would be kids running a dramatic Shakespearean scene, while violinists practiced Vivaldi in another. It was through these encounters that De Silva was finally able to come up with a name for his new project. Hot Lunch Keeping these experiences in his back pocket, De Silva knew that a film set in a performing arts school would be an organic and natural setting for a musical. During his time as an agent, De Silva had been able to make numerous connections in the film and theater world. This came in handy when he was trying to figure out who to bring on board to pen the script for Hot Lunch. After being impressed by a production based on Mary Queen of Scots named, you guessed it, Mary, De Silva approached the show's playwright, Christopher Gore. The problem is, Gore wasn't interested. He had never written a screenplay before, nor did he have any desire to. His heart was in the theater. His most recent production to make it to the Great White Way was a show called Via Galactica in 1972, which was the simple tale of a space sanitation worker in the year 2972 who collects trash on an asteroid where everyone wears a spinning hat which controls their emotions. The storyline was so convoluted that a last-minute decision was made by the producers to throw a show synopsis into the playbill, but audiences still didn't know what was going on. Still, after De Silva presented his ideas for the story, Gore agreed to do it. Using this foundation, he fashioned a rough script that would chronicle the tumultuous four-year journey of multiple talented students enrolled in various fields within the High School of the Performing Arts. With the script finished, the newly formed Creative Artists Agency signed up to represent the film, and within no time, a bidding war began between five different studios that all wanted to bring Hot Lunch to life. Upon surveying all of the options, the one studio that really stood out to them was MGM, since they had a history of teen-centered musicals dating back to the pairing of Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland. When all was said and done, De Silva paid Christopher Gore $5,000 to write the script. MGM would buy it for 400000 British director Alan Parker and his longtime producer Alan Marshall stared at two very different scripts. Parker's star was rising, following the success of his direction of Oliver Stone's screenwriting debut, Midnight Express, a gritty prison drama that single-handedly destroyed the tourism industry in Turkey. MGM had given De Silva a list of 10 directors to choose from, and after seeing the film, Parker was on the top of that list. And now, Parker and Marshall had a decision to make. On one side of the table sat the script for One from the Heart, and on the other sat Hot Lunch. What sparked Parker's interest in Hot Lunch was the exciting prospect of finally being able to work on his first American film in New York City. He was no stranger to musicals, with his first feature film being called Bugsy Malone, a musical comedy which starred a young Jodie Foster. Now granted, 
Hot Lunch was far cruder than Bugsy. But Parker was drawn to the idea of shining a light on the flip side of the American dream. The first meeting between Parker and De Silva at a restaurant in Manhattan didn't exactly go as planned. Parker told him that he would be writing his own version of the film, and that Alan Marshall would be producing, not De Silva. Following the meeting, Parker and Gore went to work on refining the script. The two became frequent guests at PA. The time spent with the students was crucial to the success of the script, ensuring that they were using the right vernacular. Soon, many of the students' actual stories and experiences began to make their way into the script. One night, Parker was hauled to the 8th Street Playhouse with a couple of the students for a midnight screening of The Rocky Horror Show. The adventure was awe-inspiring for him because he had never observed anything like it. It was spontaneous, it was unique, it had to be in the movie. With the script coming together, Parker next needed to think about how to incorporate the music, and finding a composer was proving to be difficult. He sought out the composer of Midnight Express, but he had to turn it down since he was busy working on a new Donna Summer album. He suffered the same fate when approaching Electric Light Orchestra's Jeff Lynne. Parker desperately needed someone who knew every possible kind of music, from classical to rock to pop. After talking to a close friend, producer David Putnam, a meeting was set up between Alan Parker and a relatively unknown composer named Michael Gore. No relation to Christopher Gore, but the brother of singer Leslie Gore, Michael had been a protege of Leonard Bernstein and contributed to his sister's hit song, It's My Party. The meeting between director and possible composer was set for the day after the Academy Awards, when Midnight Express lost to the Deer Hunter. Gore was certain that after that, the meeting wasn't going to happen. But the next day in Los Angeles, the two did meet, and they got along famously. When it was discovered that Gore had just gotten an apartment in New York City, he was brought on board for the film. Not as a composer, but rather as a musical coordinator. In terms of filming locations, the crew originally intended to film on-site at the actual High School of Performing Arts in Manhattan. But in order to do that, they had to win over the school board. And it wasn't going to be an easy fight. Alan Parker and Alan Marshall sat stiffly in their chairs opposite a group of intimidating, concerned, humorless members of the New York Board of Education. Parker had been attempting to instill the board with confidence that hot lunch would be a wonderful way to showcase the school and effectively put it on the map. Hearing this sentence, the head of the board sternly replied, our school has been on the map for 40 years, and we already have hundreds more applicants than we can admit. Publicity is the last thing that we need. When Parker and Gore rewrote Hot Lunch, they wanted to push reality as far as it could go. The film would be split up into multiple vignettes, documenting the students' different arduous journeys through school. This caused conflict with De Silva, who was more interested in the motivation and joy of the school, while Parker was more interested in exploring the pain. The new script ran the gamut of taboo subjects, from sexuality, to racial inequalities, to drug use, to abortions, to the sleazy horrors of the casting couch. 
The new version tapped into the gritty reality of New York in the 1970s, much in the same vein as Saturday Night Fever. In a way, the city was a character in and of itself, and the environment helped to demonstrate that just because these kids were extremely talented, they still had to walk the same grimy streets as everybody else. The school board wasn't impressed, and unanimously denied the crew access to film on location at the High School of Performing Arts. Following the decision, a member of the school board violently waved a copy of the script around while yelling, Does there have to be so much profanity? No one in our school system speaks this way! To which Alan Marshall whispered, Like f they do. Following the fallout, MGM still refused to censor the picture. And knowing that denying the movie access to film would be a huge loss for the economy, the director of the New York City Mayor's Office of Film, Nancy Littlefield, assisted in subverting the Board of Education by helping the production secure filming locations at two abandoned nearby schools. On top of dealing with the headaches from the press fallout involving the school board, Parker was also having to fight New York labor unions that weren't in favor of his British production team. Standing his ground, he was able to work out a standby agreement, which allowed local laborers to be on set to serve as a backup, as well as agreeing to hire an American cinematographer for a future production in Britain. When it came time to cast the film, he supplied a copy of the finished script to PA's principal, Richard Klein, who was surprisingly delighted by it. But he seemed to be the only one. The New York Board of Education demanded that the High School of Performing Arts deny their students from taking part in the film. But knowing that the film would be a great opportunity, Klein secretly convinced the team to schedule filming for the summer, when it wouldn't be in competition with their school hours, and he would legally have no authority over the activities of the students. In defiance of the school board, Casting calls were posted at both the High School of Performing Arts and the High School of Music and Art. Parker was extremely stressed when it came to casting. On top of all of this, the production still hadn't found a composer for the film. Michael Gore had been in enough meetings with Parker and the producers that he knew what sound the movie needed. The problem was, he needed someone who could write the lyrics to his harmonies. Across town, a young actor named Dean Pitchford took a few deep breaths before meeting his newest collaborator. The two had shared the same vocal teacher, and he had heard through the grapevine that the man he was about to meet was creating a new one-man show for Broadway. Pitchford had started out in New York as an actor, originating the lead roles in Godspell and Pippin. But after a chance encounter with composer Alan Macon, he realized that he had a talent for writing lyrics. Taking a shot in the dark, he sent the man a parcel of his lyrics with the invitation of collaborating on the new project. The show would essentially be a concert called Up In One, and it was set to be the unofficial Broadway debut of cabaret star Peter Allen. In all, Pitchford would write lyrics for five of the songs in the show which opened on May 23, 1979. In the audience that night, on a brother-sister date, sat Leslie and Michael Gore. As Michael started skimming through the playbill, he noticed a lot of the familiar lyricists. But one name stood out that he didn't recognize. Dean Pitchford. 
Following the show, Gore went backstage to congratulate Alan on a great show before inquiring to learn more about Pitchford himself. In pure Peter Allen style, he gushed over his new lyricist's professionalism and talent. Wanting a collaboration and having been impressed by what he had heard of Pitchford's work, Gore was able to get in touch with him to extend the offer to work on Hot Lunch. Pitchford was quick to agree. Meanwhile, casting was proving to be impossible for Alan Parker. Knowing that the greatest obstacle to a production is time, producer Alan Marshall reminded Parker that the longer they took with casting, the less time they would have for the actual rehearsals. And so, after seeing over 2,000 artists, the cast for Hot Lunch was officially set. The casting was unique in that it featured no famous celebrities, but rather many aspiring young performers who closely resembled their characters. Lee Carreri, a student at the Manhattan School of Music, would be cast as the innovative musician Bruno Martelli. Paul McCrane would be cast as Montgomery McNeil, the troubled son of an actress who's struggling to accept his homosexuality. Barry Miller, who had received great acclaim for his role of Bobby in Saturday Night Fever, would be cast as Ralph Garcy, an aspiring stand-up comic modeled much in the same vein as a real PA alumnus, Freddie Prince. Maureen Teefy would be cast as the shy and reserved Doris Finsecker, and Antonia Franceschi, formerly a backup dancer in Greece, would be cast as the wealthy heiress dancer Hillary. While Parker had promised to see all of the kids enrolled in PA audition for a chance at a lead role, only one current student was cast. Her name was Laura Dean, and she would play the hardworking, constantly humiliated dancer Lisa Monroe. The rest of the real students would still be featured in the film, though, as bit roles and background extras. Near the last minute of auditions, a casting director entered the room with a young man she'd found breakdancing on a street corner in Harlem. Parker had still been having trouble finding someone who could bring the cocky, misunderstood, and street-smart character of Leroy Johnson to life. That all changed when he met Gene Anthony Ray. Gene had won a handful of disco awards, and much like the character himself, had been dismissed from PA after one year for being difficult to teach. Even though someone had already been cast, choreographer Louis Falco and Alan Parker changed their minds after seeing that Gene was the perfect fit to play Leroy, based on personality and raw dancing talent. When it came to the role of the ultra triple threat Coco, Parker was interested in a young actress named Irene Cara, who he felt could bring the power and vulnerability that the character needed. She was a talented performer, having been doing it since the age of three. She was a series regular on The Electric Company and was a Broadway performer, having appeared as Claire in Christopher Gore's 1972 acid trip, Via Galactica. After seeing Cara in an off-Broadway production of Ain't Misbehavin', he invited her to his office for an audition. She sang a cappella for him, and while he was pleased, he wasn't confident that her singing would be enough to essentially carry the film. He brought in Michael Gore for a second opinion. Following the session, Gore called Parker, and the first thing he said was, Boy, has she got the chops. If she's good enough for you, then she's great for us. While the final film would focus on eight students, Parker originally intended to focus on nine. For the ninth student, 
Parker cast a talented young actress named Debbie Allen. Just a year before, she would be nominated for a Tony Award as Anita in the Broadway revival of West Side Story. Allen's journey to this point had been one filled with heartache and rejection due to a wide-held belief that African-American dancers didn't have the body structure to fit the traditional ballet body type. When she first auditioned for Hot Lunch, she tried for the role of Coco before the role went to Kara. Still being impressed by her track record and skill, Parker decided to cast Allen as Coco's nemesis, Lydia. And just like that, Hot Lunch had officially found its cast and its personality. Just in time to lose its title. When the cast was finally handed their scripts, they were confused to find that instead of Hot Lunch, the front page now just read, Title. The reason for this stemmed from an eye-opening taxi trip involving the director. Heading down 8th Avenue, Alan Parker's eyes caught a big marquee advertising the theater's newest adult film. It was called Hot Lunch. And it was featuring the prominent porn star, Al Parker. Around the same time, MGM had been hit with an injunction by the company that had created the film. Needless to say, they had to change the name. The studio sent numerous alternative titles, including Neon Dreams, Break a Leg, Shooting Stars, Spotlight, and the impossible to pronounce if you have a lisp, Pizzazz and Razzle Dazzle. None of them sounded good. And De Silva was still adamant about fighting the injunction. It was three weeks into filming when Parker was able to come up with a new title, taking inspiration from a 1975 David Bowie and John Lennon song. The film would now be called Fame. Michael Gore was the only one to know about this change at first, and he wasn't thrilled. The Bowie song of the same title was only four years old, and it wouldn't be easy to reuse that name. Still, Knowing that there was virtually no competition, he and Pitchford got cracking on a new title song before others could throw their hat in the ring. The team rehearsed the music and dance scenes for six weeks before finally starting filming. The British crew was used to working quickly and fame was scheduled for an 18 week shoot. Their style of shooting was done a lot faster than the New York based crew. And this inevitably led to them resenting each other. The short timeline, and one of the worst heat waves in New York City, only added fuel to the fire, especially for Parker, who was remembering why he disliked directing young people. The conditions were brutal, which led to fluctuations in the actor's enthusiasm, performances, and ultimately, their ability to get the job done. A number of the actors and crew members were also appalled at the European style of diffused light, which was created by using incense. As a result, the set was stormed by the Screen Actors Guild and Equity, who made the production stop filming and refused to allow the crew to continue until they had ceased use of the incense due to conditions that were possibly hazardous to their members' health. Between the horrible heat, the conflicting film crews, the egos of the cast, and a rapidly shrinking timeline, the stress of the production was beginning to take its toll on everyone involved. 
but the film's biggest logistical nightmare was yet to come. Three days. That was how much time had been given to the fame team to film the biggest sequence of the entire movie. Wanting the world to hear his son's music, the scene would find Bruno Martelli's dad pulling his taxicab up to the school and blaring the song Fame at full volume, only for the block to become dominated by over 200 dancing kids taking part in eight different routines choreographed by Falco. But when it came time to film the sequence, the main theme still hadn't been written. Proving to be a big motivator for Michael Gore while he was composing, they decided to instead use Donna Summer's disco hit, Hot Stuff, as a filler track. It goes without saying that New York City is one of the most congested cities in the world, and shutting down 46th Street for filming was going to be a nightmare. To make matters worse, the night before the scene was set to begin, the camera operator had to return to England for personal reasons. Not knowing what else to do, the director of photography operated the camera for an hour before a big black limousine pulled up to the set and a group of union representatives in all black suits stopped the production. They informed Parker that a director of photography couldn't be a camera operator and they could either fill the position with an operator from their union or the entire film would be shut down permanently. Traffic was getting out of control. The enormous cast was getting impatient, and more importantly, they were running out of time to get the shot. Begrudgingly, they opted for the replacement camera operator, who proceeded to only slow things down more. On day two, Parker was accosted by the New York City Police Department, who told him that the film had backed up traffic so bad, they were considering only allowing the production to shoot until 4 p.m. Parker took a deep breath and tried to maintain control. Then, the dancers went on strike, and the men in black suits returned to the scene. Since some dancers were performing on top of a taxi cab, they now demanded to be paid an extra $100 a day for the stunt. Producer Alan Marshall had enough and began squabbling with the union representative in the middle of 46th Street. Defeated, Alan Parker turned his back on the fiasco and sat down on an aluminum camera box. He looked at Marshall yelling at the union reps, the actors fanning themselves in the sun, and the massive traffic jam that had come as a result of the film shoot. By the time the disastrous three-day shoot ended, he was certain that he would never be allowed to make a movie in America again. The average length for a movie in the 1970s was around two hours long. At this point, fame was going to be 10. Parker knew that he was going to need to make cuts. And one of the victims of this decision was Debbie Allen. Debbie's dress was returned to her, along with a check and the crew thanking her for her time. They had reels and reels of footage, mostly because the cameras never stopped rolling. They wanted to capture the natural chemistry and interactions that made the real PA experience special. It was this style of filming that made the hot lunch jam sequence even more unique. Everything leading up to the eventual explosion of music wasn't scripted, but rather was the documentation of the cast's natural rapport with one another. 
In the spirit of trying to keep things grounded in a reality where something like this could really happen, choreographer Louis Falco sought to make the choreography appear spontaneous and represent a sort of controlled chaos. Falco would indulge in the anarchy of creating sequences free of inhibitions. But the timing still needed to be precise, and the actors had to look like they were authentically playing the instruments. To ensure the authenticity, Michael Gore would ascend a ladder with a pair of binoculars to make sure that all the actors were hitting the correct beats in time with the backing tracks. Finally, after nearly 90 days of excruciating filming, the team got ready to shoot the final number. When rewriting the script, Parker listened to the song El Dorado by the Electric Light Orchestra on repeat. ELO was dominating the airwaves with hits like Don't Bring Me Down, Mr. Blue Sky, and Livin' Thing. The last musical number of the film would see the students celebrating graduation. For that number, Parker was set on using El Dorado as the final song. This was a decision that nearly everybody disagreed with. Dean Pitchford pleaded with Parker to instead use an original song that related to the music. The number would highlight each of the different characters, from the viewpoint of Bruno. Keeping this in mind, Pitchford thought that maybe Bruno's inspiration for writing the song would have come from a poetry class he had taken. He dove into numerous classic poetry anthologies. Then one night, after a month of trying to figure out the lyrics, he was walking through the streets of New York when he was reminded of a line from Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass, which said, I sing the body electric. Later on at a friend's dinner party, he ran into the bathroom, sat down on the floor, and wrote the lyrics for the entire song in 14 minutes, using the toilet seat as a makeshift table. When Gorham Pitchford presented the number to Parker, he wasn't sold until his friend, David Putnam, visited the set and caught himself singing the lyrics that Pitchford had written. He turned to Parker and said, Alan, just use it. And so, against all the odds, fame would complete filming on October 8th, 1979, on time and without going over their modest $8.5 million budget. Alan Parker's go-to editor, Jerry Hamblin, sat and assembled three days worth of footage from the nightmare shots on 46th Street and pasted it together for a dynamic and smooth dance number set to Donna Summer's Hot Stuff. Using only this footage and a couple of clicks for the tempo, Pitchford and Gore would spend the next month attempting to write the title song for fame that would match up with the dance movements they were seeing on screen. Pitchford began improvising, following each fame and after a couple of tries, he finally got a line that stuck. Having the song in place, Gore pulled Alan Parker into an empty music room at Heron High and started banging out the song. Parker was less than thrilled and was even ready to reject the song when he heard Pitchford's new line, I'm gonna live forever, baby remember my name? Parker thought, who would listen to that? But then he had remembered that it was written for Irene Cara, and decided to wait and see what it would sound like in the studio. Playing to the strength of Cara's voice, Gore and Pitchford went all out to create a hard-hitting, 
energetic song that was only amplified when Gore layered in synthesizers and guitars to create a song that mixed in elements of disco and the budding dance pop genre that would come to dominate the 1980s. On Kara's recommendation, they started laying down the background vocals with singer Luther Vancross. After hearing the chorus for the first time, he made them stop and rewind the tape. Following the line, Baby, Remember My Name, he let out a melodic and hypnotizing, Remember, Remember, Remember. Parker was sold. By the end of the process, Parker was impressed by Gore's dedication and work that he finally asked him to be the film's composer. As the date of the premiere came closer, the team was still running into the problem of not being able to conceptualize what image the film's title would project to moviegoers. The answer would come when production designer Jerry Kirkland returned from a New York Yankees game and took inspiration from the font to spell out the movie's title. Instantly, everyone understood. This wasn't just a film about talented teenagers struggling through high school and creating careers. It was a film about growing up and finding success in the beautiful, grime-filled reality of 1970s New York. While it may have been called fame, it was actually a film about failure and the unrelenting reality of show business in the Big Apple. Fame would have its world premiere on May 12, 1980 at the Ziegfeld Theater in New York, and MGM executives were extremely nervous. They were once known as the studio that had more stars than there were in heaven. And now here they were, about to premiere a film that featured an actual teacher from a New York public school. To help spread the word of mouth for the nationwide release, and to generate a positive critical response, the studio provided a record number of free tickets to many of the advanced screenings, and embarked on a $2.1 million marketing campaign that included releasing the soundtrack five days prior to the film's opening. Instantly, regardless of the radio station, time of day, or location, nobody could escape Irene Cara's powerful vocals that assured everybody would remember her name. Shortly after the film was released, it became a cultural phenomenon. Much like Saturday Night Fever, Alan Parker and Christopher Gore's unapologetic approach to the themes of fame, success, and the everyday struggles of teenage life resonated with audiences. Just three weeks after the film was released, MGM began production on a pilot episode for a television spinoff. Since it would be on NBC, the grit and raw truth of the film would be watered down and the only cast members to return would be Gene Anthony Ray, Lee Carreri, and Albert Hodge. Despite having her lines in the film drastically cut down, and her role changed from a student to a barely seen dance instructor, the producers knew that they needed a real trained dancer for the television show. To fill this spot, they brought back Debbie Allen to grow the character of Lydia and become the guiding force of the show. The wins for fame would continue at the 1981 Academy Awards when the film would become the first movie in history to have two songs nominated for Best Original Song, with Michael Gore and Dean Pitchford eventually winning for the Irene Cara smash hit, Fame. The most jaw-dropping win of the night 
came when Gore, who wasn't originally the composer, won the Oscar for Best Original Score. This was his first attempt, and he was able to beat out John Williams and The Empire Strikes Back. As the years continued to pass, fame proved to be a launching pad for nearly everybody involved. Irene Cara went on to sing the unofficial anthem of the decade with 1983's Flashdance What a Feeling. Dean Pitchford would attempt to write a movie musical of his own after learning about a small town in Oklahoma which had just made dancing legal. Michael Gore would go on to compose numerous scores for 1980s hits like Terms of Endearment and Pretty in Pink. And Alan Parker would continue his work with musicals, directing Pink Floyd's The Wall in 1982 and taking the helm for the film adaptation of Andrew Lloyd Webber's Evita in the 90s. Though the show's conceptualizer David DeSilva wasn't as involved with the film, he made the smart move of keeping the rights for television and stage adaptations when selling the rights to MGM. Fame would become his life's work. And though the decision was made to not bring the show to Broadway, stage productions continued to dominate the globe with DeSilva now going by the name Father Fame. Over 40 years after the release of Fame, it's evident that the film will live forever. Unlike the step-ups and lemonade mouths that would dominate the 2010s, Fame was unique in the way it was created with a 1970s frame of mind. The film basically revitalized the teen musical genre that had been made famous by Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland by adding dramatic elements into the narrative. It didn't shy away from themes of feminism, racial pride, and gay liberation, but embraced them in a way that hadn't really been seen before. Alan Parker didn't want to make a quote-unquote musical, but rather wanted to create a dynamic narrative that revolved around character development that would occasionally have a song or two. It helped that he took a shot on the pair of Michael Gore and Dean Pitchford, who inadvertently created the soundtrack for the MTV generation. It was really the title song, complemented by the footage of New York City kids dancing on taxicabs, that would become the defining snapshot of what the 80s would become fame at any cost. Fame would be a film that would heavily influence the American culture in the 1980s, especially as the narcissistic tendencies of the time began to take hold. And soon, much like Warhol and Finkelstein predicted, everyone became obsessed with claiming their 15 minutes of fame. Following the release of Fame, Gore would find himself on top of the world. And to celebrate, he and his partner would go to the Met for a performance of Alban Berg's opera, Lulu. Little did they know, this date night wouldn't only change their lives, but the state of Broadway forever. This is what it's all been leading up to.
It has a great energy to it. The dancing is spectacular. It's a great big dance show. And the music is divine and the cast is incredible. Oh, we found a wonderful young girl from London to play Carrie. Oh, and Special thanks to our amazing center stage patrons. Defunctionland, Autumn, Brent Black, Noxie Zabat, Nate Gardner, Ethan, Julian Dean, LEZTM Productions, Tommy Kindle, Abigail Rosella, John Fogg, Mark S., The Kid Tested Mother Approved Podcast, JC, Chase Eugene McCants, Catherine Esperanza, Brianna Michelle Meyer, Chaperless Productions, Melissa Marquette, Haley Longo, Aiden Lamb, Justin Laurie, The Drawer Kring, Sammy Kornecki, Musicals with Cheese, Sebastian Canino, and Emily Chahuas. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.